Okay, any questions? Comments, thoughts? All right. Then we will set out. Um, number 221 says, what is, what is seen exists only for the sake of him who sees. I, this is another one where I'm not so sure. But you all unraveled it for me last week when I couldn't unravel it for you. What Swami writes here is how God created everything out of his own nature and lives at the heart of it. I think what the sutra is saying is that, the only, that everything about creation is only about God. It's not about anything else. What is seen exists only for the sake of him that or who sees. But the him is a capital H. And what Swami writes about is it's the nature of bliss to manifest itself. All creation appeared for the delight of God. So I guess in the end, there's nothing happening here except God is enjoying himself through many. And then moving right along to 222, <laughs> unless someone has something else better to say, I'm just going to let Swami just have the last word on that one. But it's the capital him. Exactly. That's the problem. Well, he, then he talks about that. It, um, he talks about the individual elsewhere. I think he talked about the individual earlier. Now, see, page number 220 says, that which sees, experiences through the senses, though apparently colored by the mind, is in reality pure consciousness. And that's about the immortal Atman that we talked about last week. <laughs> but this time we're talking about the Supreme Spirit, that the only, everything that's happening is only existing because God manifested it. And that's all there is in the end. Moving right along to 222. And if anybody has anything else to say, we can try it. Though demolished as delusion by one who has attained his goal, it remains a universal reality for all other beings. Actually, um, Patanjali is answering a question that people ask because there's some... Um, Swami would sometimes make light of the sort of the philosophical thought that when I cease to relate to this reality, that reality ceases to exist. And people have actually big conversations about this point. You know, if it ceases to exist for me, is it still out there? And Patanjali actually, actually answers it really directly. You, you get in these philosophical discussions with people who are guessing and you never have any answer at all. So Patanjali just makes the statement, even though it is dissolved for you, it still goes on for everybody else. It's just, and it's, a, it's not necessarily something that you or I were thinking about, but it is a question that people will ask you. And it's nice to be able to point to Patanjali 222 <laughs> and say, no, this is what he says. Uh, Marilyn has a question. Well, uh, and a, a good example of it I thought of is, you know, let's say there's this person who generally irritates everybody, but, but one person, one, there's a person who generally irritates everybody, but, but um, then one person overcomes this irritation somehow and just isn't irritated by that person anymore. But everybody else still is. <laughs> yes, that's another way to put it. On a small scale, that's exactly true. <laughs> what Patanjali is talking about cosmically, you have just talked about in the microcosm. Yeah, <laughs> it still goes on. <laughs> I'm just thinking about 221. So. Thank you. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is on a tangent or, or on the same lines, but there's this philosophical question in quantum physics uh, which uh -huh. says... Um, when a tree falls in a forest and no one is there to hear, 
is there sound or not? Right. Um, I mean, by quantum theory, there is no sound because sound is only a matter of perception and not reality in itself. So I don't know if I'm thinking mm -hmm. of it in the right direction, but it's it's a it's a philosophical question that that says reality is a matter of perception versus something. I I don't know. Well, if actually, I'm, that is what two twenty one says. I mean, it's. Let me think. I actually thought about the trees falling in the forest, but I chose not to say it. <laughs> because I didn't know what to say about it, and now you have thrust it upon us. Um, well, in a very real sense, that tree falling is an expression of the creative consciousness of the divine, and, if, and so it does fall. It does fall in his dream universe. Because he's in the middle of it. He's not watching it from a distance. I, my mind just goes, tilt. I mean, I can't, I can't get words or thoughts around it. If other people can or if anything pops into my head before this class is over, I'll hand it back. But I'm having, I have, this is just too far beyond me. So I can read what he says and I can kind of get it. But I don't know how to bring it. Um, I don't know how to bring it into something that I can actually do anything with. So that's why I'm just kind of reading and moving on. He does say, um, at, to the end of 2.22, uh, all this is a dream from which someday we will awake and much sooner if even in the dream we try always to dream about that dawn of final awakening which is a very nice thought which is always to remember no matter how long it takes and whatever is going to happen that that will be the end of the story that does I mean I think that's a very useful idea and that's what he says right here um, the life we live in here on earth uh, it's not a permanent reality. Um, it doesn't even have the reality of our, a bubble. We should remind ourselves in the face of all of life's ups and downs that this is a fact. And, it's, and he goes on to talk about discrim, uh, discrimination in the ones we're coming to. It's just like whenever anything agitates us, just keep moving ourselves back to that reality. No matter, everything that exists within us. I heard uh, some other teacher speak and he said some, she said something that I thought was very interesting. Um, she said, uh, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, is how she put it, meaning that difficult, bad things will happen. People that you love will die, you will be betrayed, your expectations will be disappointed, things will happen, and it's naive to say they don't. But if after they happen, we tend to live in a repeating cycle of constantly remembering and renewing that, that's when it becomes our responsibility. I had a very interesting uh, revelation, just this feeling about, I have a few uh, karmic memories of, you know, relationships, just situations. I had, well, here's here it really came down to. I realized that I had a certain desire to have an argument with someone. I really wanted to fight with them. And I realized that I'm, I have like a, a past life memory of being mistreated. And I am always trying to get the last word. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean? I mean, just imagine what happened, what happens if something that really disturbs you takes place and never gets resolved. And, and you carry that thought that you never got to say what you wanted to say. You never got the apology you wanted. You never got the reconciliation. All these different things. So you're born into this incarnation and you're... You have, you have the vritti wants 
to have that happen. I mean, that's what happens so much between people. People who are argumentative and who, who, who take offense really easily and are always mad at someone or people who get into relationships and then they're always on the other person. And it's, I realize it's just, it, it's a vritti that you store up of disappointment or resentment or anger. And it's either generally, or I mean, what I mean is it's either related to someone else, but you take it out in this situation, or it's specifically who you're with. It's just left over. It's like none of this is really happening, but we cling to it. That's what I was trying to say. It has no more reality than a bubble. We just don't let things go. And all of us, whatever we're carrying, where our heart is broken, where we're still angry, whether we feel that somebody mistreated us and we just never got the satisfaction we wanted, if you're holding that, it's just going to be pushing. And you're going to be looking out and goes back over here to this one, the, you know, even though it's, a, it's colored by the mind. And then we think that he did this to me and she did this to me and they did that to me and they don't understand and they should be doing this. And all it is is just that restlessness that wants, who knows what it's related to. I mean, this is why the grace of God is the only solution here. Because I, I wouldn't, there was one very unfortunate marriage in Ananda's history, short and very unhappy, because both individuals at that time, I'm talking 35 years ago, so it's nobody that you all even know, neither individual, and this is the way I thought about it at the time, had any idea where their pain was really coming from. It was all just like past lives and unresolved issues. And they brought themselves together. And so things would happen and then this one would be upset. And then things would happen and this one would be upset. And they kept making a cause and effect relationship between each other's actions and the way they felt. But in fact, it had nothing to do with it. It was entirely just the whirling vrittis of unresolved energies that just kept wanting somebody to hear me. You know, just somebody needs to make it right. I saw this child when I was traveling once on one of those long international cycles and the kid was in a stroller. And he was sort of, I was going to say chained, strapped into the stroller and as children, as children do when they're just so unhappy and he was arching his back and flailing around inside that thing and he just kept, you know, whining and wailing and just kicking and he, he didn't have enough energy to scream but he was, and I mean, I looked at him and it's clear as day this child said out loud, I feel terrible, somebody do something. And he was just, you know, he wasn't speaking but I, that's exactly what it was. That was his whine, somebody do something. And I thought, man, how many times just like in our own way that's exactly what we're doing we're just we have this unresolved energy we want to fight we want to get the last word we want somebody to say they're sorry and we just flail around and we want somebody to do something and if that happens to be your poor marriage partner you try to get them to do it or your boss or your brother or whoever it might be your kid yes so um if you have one of these situations where you have all this energy stored up in a vritti it seems like it, it's, it can be a very specific sort of energy, you know, you know, like this energy of needing to argue and win an argument. You know, it, it's not just energy. It's specifically that kind of thing in the situation. Mm -hmm. And so let's say there's a lot of that going on, but you also realize, okay, this isn't actually related to anything that's going on here in this lifetime. Um, you know, we don't have to be 
playing this out because it's not a current true anything, but then what do you do with all that energy of the argumentative sort? Like, because the energy has to go somewhere, and it's very specifically this kind of energy that's trying to do this kind of thing. Well, it depends on whether it is inter. What did we? What was it way back here? Whether it's, you know, those words. Yeah, whether it's sporadic, whether it's a whether it's sporadic, whether it's occasional or sustained. Um, I mean, what the first step is it, and this is what Patanjali, where we go next, is you have to use your discrimination. I mean, the first step is to realize what I am doing is not related to what's happening. This is an independent experience from what's going on around me. That's just a gigantic step. You know, this jiva wants to argue. It's not that those people are actually challenging me in a way that really matters. This jiva wants to feel respected. And it may, in fact, be that people are disrespecting you, but your response to it is really what's happening. And the first step always is discrimination. And then self-control is a long process. And, you, and, and it is, it's somewhat of an individual matter. You have to decide, given the flow of energy, what is the best way to work with it? Um, to separate yourself from the situation, to be judicious in how you respond, to just walk out of the room and get away from it as fast as you can. Um, are you in a situation where, where you can actually talk about what's really happening? It's, I don't think there's a general answer to that one. But you definitely do not want to make it worse. And above all, you don't, want to, uh, you don't want to imagine that somebody's actually doing something to you, even if they're wrong and even if they're misbehaving. I, I, I joke with my friends, you know, when you're right, the test is even more delicious. <laughs> because you're totally justified. <laughs> but you're still never justified if it's just your agitation. It doesn't matter if the person really deserves it. You have to, if you're compelled, if the, the point of the word is compelled. If you're compelled to respond, it's always your problem. If you're capable of choosing to respond, then you may decide what's appropriate and what's not. Yes? I think maybe what I'm trying to figure out is if you have, again, using the example of argumentative energy that right. wants to come out, that energy could be used up or dissipated in a non-argumentative way, even though it's, it seems so specifically energy for this thing, it could, depending on the situation, actually be uh, used up even by running away or yeah. talking it out or whatever, whatever else. I, I think by running around the room or going outside and running four miles and things like that. I mean, just So even though in the moment it seems very specifically that this energy exists only to do this one thing, which may be arguing or whatever, that's not actually true. No, that's not actually true. It's that you are not at peace with yourself and this is the form that it's taking. And you have to convince yourself or the energy or something that it, that it can be taken care of by another means. Well, but that's sort of what, where this whole thing started, was I realized just, uh, you know, I, I, uh, certain karmic memories, are, I'm carrying certain karmic memories. I mean, remember that I, I told you all, I went through that period where I just thought if David left me in the airport, he was going to never come back. And it, it, was, it was so intensely real to me, very specific, but it really had nothing to do with whether he would come back. He would always come back. He wasn't going to miss the plane. But it just came out of me in such an exaggerated way. And you know, the need to win an argument, the need to have the last word, the need to have your ideas understood. These are, 
driving forces. But see, what I try to do is I try to back it up. What am I really upset about? What am I really afraid about? What am I really trying to accomplish? And I think that helps. Why do I feel I have to win? Why am I so impatient? Why can't I let it just go the way it has to go? Why can't I trust these people to do it well? Why do I feel that I have to have such control? And that at least helps me. Does that, is that anywhere where we're trying to go? Because it's, what we're talking about is I am off-center. And it may be one thing that's pulled you off-center, but once you get back to center, you realize it's just something that pulled me off-center. Whether it has to be related to in detail specifically is a very personal answer. I think is actually the... Uh, Trish? So if you recognize that you have something stirring in the vrittis, yeah, the is vrittis it, are, are you out. saying it's possible to reason yourself out of it? I think Does something always has to have to be done? Does action always have to be taken, or is it possible to kind of think your way through it? I think I would use way? the word discrimination rather than thought exactly, because if you're just thinking in circles, if you're analyzing, that's quite different than discerning the truth of a situation. And sometimes people analyze, well, I feel this way because of that, and then because of this, and because of that, and it just becomes a self-involved circle. Yeah, you start spinning. You start spinning. But if you just realize, I'm just really off-center, and I'm never going to understand anything until I get centered again. My personal experience is that, in, that clarity just pops into your head when you make a sincere attempt to resist wrong energy. Then you just sort of suddenly, if you just keep making that sincere attempt, then, then suddenly clarity will just come to you. It's like the clarity to me seems to be the result of the sincere effort to stay in tune and to not allow yourself to get swept away by things that you don't really want to be swept away by. I don't even mean the successful um, a, a, a successful resistance, but just the sincere effort to resist, I think aligns you with a certain kind of clarity and then that will just pop into your head and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I can see what's happening here. I'm just so whatever it is. That's my experience. I used to analyze a lot and got nowhere. Now I, I tend to observe more and just say, wow, look at that. Yet, boy, where is that coming from? But the, after I ask that question, I don't spend a lot of time to figure out where it's coming from. I just say, wow, where is that coming from? You know, be careful because you, you're not in your right mind. Wait till you calm down before you do this. Marilyn, you want? What what you what you described as the clarity, I think, is God's grace. I that's what I think too, and that's why I was saying you make a sincere effort to get back in tune, and then something happens. But when you're, it's 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 a tricky business. What I'm I, there isn't only reason I brought it up is I'm just amazing that it never ends. You know, you just kind of think you've got a handle, and then all of a sudden you just watch yourself, just think, whoa, that was kind of not really there. Swamiji wasn't like that. Everybody else I know is at least a little like that. You know, we're less, much less than we used to be, but wow. Yeah, I have perfect confidence in it. Absolute perfect. I think it's very important to stay, I always call it karmically current. You know, I try to like go to bed even every night. <laughs> I, don't like to, I don't like to let them go an extra day. I mean, if I can't resolve it, that's one thing, but I at least like to know, huh, look at this. You know, this is in front of me. I try to just stay as current as I can because... 
And it, when he talks about it later when we get into the yamas and the niyamas, it just doesn't do you any good just to suppress it. If it's, just, if it's what it is, it's what it is. Sometimes you have to live with it for a long time to realize, I'm just so impressed by past incarnations. I'm really impressed. I have a lot of respect for delusion. Really. Yeah, he's nobody to mess around with. Wow. Okay. 2.23. There's a whole lot of short ones here. The identity of the owner with that which he owns gives his possessions power over him. He thinks them part of himself. I thought it was such fun that he threw that one in there. Okay, the identity of the owner with that which he owns gives his possessions power over him. He thinks them part of himself. <laughs> I just asked the simple question, is this really how we want to live? <laughs> I think how vulnerable we are. I don't feel like this room needs a lot of conversation on this, but it's amazing when you see people. There's always My favorite is always those guys with those trucks that they've really raised way off off the ground with those giant wheels and there's such a commitment and you know they open the door and they come out <laughs> you know it's just like wow what a lot of energy to put into something like that it's it, but it 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 becomes an extension of your identity and but it, yeah he's talking about everything everything well the way the nuns used to deal with it is yeah, the way the nuns would deal with it is everything would be our. This is our cup. We're going to our cell and we're going to put on our habit. And I mean, you could see why. But it is every time. I remember when um, we had just moved into the house that we built in uh, at Ananda Village, the little guest house next to Swami's. And then Swamiji's, well, they were going to do work on his house and... So it was going to be a very disturbed environment. We had just moved in. And so somebody else said, well, why don't David and Asha just move out of their house and give you their house? And I did not want to. I really didn't want to. And Swami could see. I didn't say anything. I said nothing. I couldn't even bring up a yes. And so he just said, no, I don't think we're going to do that. No. And everybody kept saying, that was a perfect solution. Why don't you do that? And, uh, but he just knew I didn't want to. And then I, overnight I thought about it and I thought to myself, this is, you, can't, you know, you have to want, you have to say yes to this. I went back to him and I said, you know, Swamiji, you have to move into my house. And he sort of, you know, really looked at me. And he, he it was sort of like, do you really want me to? You have to move into my house. That was the answer. <laughs> no, I don't want you to at all, but you have to move into my house. And he laughed and then moved in just to make it absolutely charming. At that time he lived... Um, there was a, they built an apartment from under the floor of the main dome there, where it's now, there's a recording studio there if you go into Crystal Hermitage. His, you turn right when you go downstairs. So we had this apartment down there that we had built for him very lovingly about 1978. I'd never really been in there very often. Inherently, it was awful. The architecture of it was terrible because the porch that goes out over there just made it a dark cave. It was a dark cave. The stove had been installed improperly, so it was never warm in there. Swami lived there for years. And, I mean, after we moved in there, I said, how did you, why didn't you say something? I mean, he was out of the country when it was built, and it, he never said anything about it, but it was awful. And then, just to make it fun, because 
David and I went on a lecture tour to Seattle. So we left, Swami moved into our house, and we were going to move into his apartment, which, you know, this is not really a hardship assignment when you think about it, except that while we were gone, a pipe burst and the entire apartment flooded. So all the carpets had to be rolled up and everything just got pushed to the sides. So we came down there to this dark, cold place with almost all the furniture stacked around the side and down to the bare floor. And uh, it was just, it, by that point, it was just funny. We just thought it was just hilarious. So we sort of lived in this disaster zone, this freezing disaster zone through Christmas. <laughs> well, he wrote the oratorio, I think is what he was writing in our house. But it was perfect. We loved it. We just absolutely loved it. And that was when our cat obtained Crystal Hermitage privileges. It was the only cat that was regularly allowed in Crystal Hermitage at that time. But, uh, but it was very interesting just even to see that. You know, you get to move into Swami's apartment, he's going to move into your house. And still that, you know, this is mine. I want this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I just got it set up. I want to be there. It's really amazing. I mean, just think about everything. How, how, how can we? How would we? If it was really asked to be given up, how quickly could we give it up? We might not identify with our automobiles or whatever it might be that extent, but what if? What if it's just taken away? It's a great exercise. And he says, well, he says it later, just give away the things that you have if somebody else wants it. Remember that story about Master and the motorcycle? That he just loved that motorcycle and then that man wanted the motorcycle and he just said oh sure you can have it and he went inside and got the pink slip and gave it to him just right then how can you give away something so expensive well master said it knowing that you wanted it I couldn't enjoy it anymore I mean that's just where it is just as easy as that so good to practice good to meditate on because even if we think we're a little detached I try to think sometimes of the whole house burning down you know, what would it matter? And what would matter? What would matter? What, would, what we, could I lose out of this place that would matter and wouldn't matter? So. The identity of the owner with that which he owns gives his possessions power over him. He thinks of them as part of himself. I love that phrase, power over them. Your possessions have power over you. They have the power to hurt you. These are inanimate objects that have the power to hurt you, to cause you pain. Does this um, also apply to other things we're attached, like family? Well, yes. (laughs) and so I'm thinking can your attachments get more and more refined so that you're not attached to things but maybe you're attached to family and you let go of of your son, daughter, husband but you're attached to your guru bias and you, you know attached to your guru and so forth well it does refine you get but if you're if you're attached to something that is going to take you out of all egoic attachment it's not ego i mean to be attached to your guru bias to be attached to your guru is not attachment because it's a it's an ego dissolving 
connection and therefore it doesn't fit the definition. He says here, um, in, in just ones that are a couple of away, when he's talking about detachment, let me just see if I can find where he says it. What about your wife? What about your husband? What about your children? Um, what about your relatives? And he, he says very nicely, love will certainly draw back to you all those you love now. But in the long winding path of countless incarnations, you really have only one true friend, which is God. Cultivate your friendship with him above all. So non-attachment is, here it is, is not to think even that which you have is yours. That's not the same as is not loving them. You can love your children wholeheartedly, but you don't make the mistake of thinking that these are my children. These are the children that have been given to me to love. And so as long as, as, as they have been given to me to love, I will love them. This is the husband that has been given to me to love. You can even say this is the house that has been given to me to take care of. But as soon as it's not mine to take care of anymore, I don't feel that something has happened to me. I just know that that which I was responsible for has now been removed. And, this, you know, he has this you know, reassuring thing. Love will certainly draw back to you all those you love now. So you don't have to feel merely because they've gone away that you have lost them. Like Jacqueline said when uh, Vasudeva died, people would say, I'm sorry you lost your husband. She would always say, I haven't lost him. I know just where he is. <laughs> that was her response. It was perfect. You know, he's gone away, but I haven't lost him. Because you can't lose the people you love. They will come back to you. Does that make sense? It's very subtle, but it's extremely important because you can't be cold and you can't be afraid. Sometimes people try to be non-attached by being uninvolved. We've talked about this a lot. It's a very important difference. If you're given a child to raise, you've got to raise it. You just can't not do it. You don't get out of karma by doing it badly. When Swami gave us a house to build, we had to build it. We had to build it right. It's a big thing to build a house. You have to build it right. You have to think about it and make it, you know, well worth it. But that doesn't mean that if it's not your responsibility anymore, it it matters. It's just gone from you when it's gone. But as long as it's with you, you're responsible. This is, I mean, Patanjali is like, he's not for sissies. He really isn't. He's not for kindergartners either. We're just way up there. It's just, it's an all or nothing story here. Okay, so now our possessions have possessed us, but we're not possessed by them, so we go on. The cause of this identity of ourselves with our possessions is ignorance. His favorite word, ignorance. There you have it. 2.24. The cause of this identity of the owner of things with the things themselves is ignorance. And then Swami just repeats it. I love that it's nothing complicated, I wrote here. It's nothing complicated at all. If it is ignorance to identify yourself with anything external. We should look inward within ourselves for the truth. I and mean, that's what I was sort of trying to say earlier. We're just always getting stirred up inside and trying to make it somehow related to the outside. And it just isn't, Tom. Could you pass the microphone over to Tom, please? Is that the, when, you know, Patanjali, when, when, he has a very definite definition of ignorance when he 
is he talking about the uh, a few uh, sutras ago? I think it's in book two, early in book two, um, where he ex- oh here it is. Ignor- it's two five. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is the conviction that what is impermanent is permanent, that what is impure is pure, that what is painful is pleasant, and then what is the non-self is the true self. That's exactly so right. So he's not just saying ignorance like stupidity. Oh, he's no, saying, no. This is what I mean. This is what ignorance Yeah, that's exactly right. So to identify as ignorance, it's to think that the not real is real. You're exactly right. Everything goes back to 2.5. That's why... Um, I suggested that they print the sutras sequentially without any commentary in them. So we can see it. Okay. And then at 2.25 it says, Without this ignorance, no such identity occurs. Thus comes the complete freedom of the seer. And we just keep keeping it simple. That's what just he's, These are all very simple. The ignorance to, to mistake the real for the unreal and so on. 2.26. Uninterrupted conscious discrimination is the best, the best method for penetrating this veil of ignorance. Uninterrupted conscious discrimination is the best method for penetrating the veil of ignorance. Okay, he says, basically what he's saying here is that every single moment is exactly the same opportunity. And this is where, I mean, this is where simple devotional practices come in because he's not talking about, um, he's not giving us any practices, he's just explaining it. But the, the constant practice of japa, the repeating of a mantra inside yourself, the um, keeping of the company of God, the attempt to perceive the divine hand and everything that happens around you, that's a state of uninterrupted conscious discrimination. That's why it's important to understand these are not just intellectual ideas. This is like I'm, I'm always trying to discriminate in my experience, you know, to, to stay in the, the inner reality and not allow circumstances to upset me so much. You know, um, somebody is uh, being unkind, somebody's being argumentative, somebody's being obstructionist. It's like we just stand inside the inner self, and there it is happening. We don't have to always be so externally related. Or, you know, I've had all this work to do. Just I've had. It's not even so much that I've had quantity. I've just had extremely unrelated things just going on simultaneously. It's made me an incredible airhead. I've just been extremely airheaded about it. And more than once, I've been a little tense. But each time I sort of reach and something else gets finished, I remind myself, why do you ever get tense? It always gets done. Always. Or, or alternatively, it doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, it just either does or it doesn't. There's... And we, we are not exercising, I am not exercising con, constant conscious discrimination between my belief that I need to be stressed about this and the reality of whether I do or not. You know, the, the workload, the projects, it's exactly the same. The choice to decide to, to consider that to be some kind of a burden, that's where this constant com, conscious discrimination is required. What am I'm allowing... Something else to possess my consciousness. You know, he talks about possessions, but states of mind are also things that we possess. Marilyn has a question on this side. I was just thinking when you are in a state of conscious, constant... Constant conscious discrimination. Constant conscious discrimination. Uninterrupted conscious. Uninterrupted conscious 
discrimination, it's whatever. Still, still a mouthful. Uh-huh. Then you are able to behave appropriately. Yes, exactly, because you can tell the difference. Well, because you're not in a state of ignorance. You can tell the difference between what causes suffering and what is the projection and the, what you're looking at and just all of those things. Uninterrupted, conscious discrimination. That's the real key to all of this. And it is not intellectual because a great deal of it is your heart, your feeling being calm, your feeling being conscious of the divine presence, your feeling being conscious of the divinity of everybody that you're looking at and that they're just in the same boat that you're in and everybody's just acting out their little story and some days are better than others. Everybody takes turns. (laughs) And to just be able to be able to tell and able to just know this is a really bad day for me and I'm just behaving like a terrible person and that's just what's happening. But even to say that and remain aware of the fact that this isn't me, this is just the waves on the surface of the sea, just acting itself out now. Uh, Tricia? So the first thing that occurred to me when I read this verse was, it, it seemed to be like the basis of jnana yoga, the constant discrimination, not this, not this, yes, exactly. as not in the... Uh, f- from the aspect of saying, uh, you know, repudiating everything, but just uh, using that discrimination That's on what an ongoing think basis. Of but see, you can just, jnana is, uh, well, it's a certain, let me just think about this. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how you would define jnana, um, but you could have constant, uninterrupted conscious discrimination with a bhakti attitude. You could have it with a karma yoga attitude too, that all I'm here to do is serve. And so everything that happens, I just want to ask, how can I serve? Or I, or I can just want to ask in all situations, how can I love God? It, or you can think, you can say, neti, neti, this is not real, this is not real, this is not the divine. But those would be temperamental ways. But even if you have not a scrap of the, the yana yoga in you, you could still be in a state of uninterrupted con- conscious discrimination. Because you would always just be... I watched um, my friend Paula, who I spoke about, who died in the movie, who didn't die in the movie, but I spoke about her death in the movie. And the story that I often told about her was when she was working in Mountain Song, running the business there, and somebody who was in the main office of Ananda had made some kind of financial decision that she thought was a lousy decision. I came in and she was venting a little bit about how much she didn't like it and what were they thinking and they didn't really know what her situation was and why would they have decided that. And then she walked and she took a step like this and then it was, hit, was a woman who made the decision. Then she just talked about how, you know, that woman not only works full time but she has two children so she, when she goes home at night she has to take care of those kids. They're wonderful children. She's doing a fabulous job as a mother, you know. I don't know if I could work like she does and still take care of the kids. By the time she calls on the phone, she says, Hi, how are you doing? I mean, she just talked herself completely out of... She'd united her spirit with the spirit of the woman. And then they just had a completely harmonious conversation. And she did it like this. But she just was in a state of uninterrupted conscious discrimination... So she started with frustration. By the time she was actually expressing herself, she had created another state of unity. And then it was just a little discussion about this decision versus that, and it didn't mean anything in the end. But I watched her do it. I was amazed. because She just kind of chatted to me all the way across 
till the, till the phone. She's chatting while the phone's ringing. By the time she was there, she was another woman. I learned a lot that day. It was a big day. Yeah. But the same, some of you have heard these stories, but this is very apt. The same, Paula, and at this time it was uh, Susan Rinsler, and uh, the woman, uh, Shraddha Von Tobel was her name. There's another Shraddha now, but this was the, what we call the first Shraddha. She died of cancer when she was about 32 or 35. She was the first young person to die, I think, in our community. And she had a very tempestuous relationship with her dad, who was called Jake. And she had moved away from her dad, and they were always... It was, it was a very intense... It, it wasn't entirely negative, it was just very intense. So Jake was totally freaked out because Shraddha was dying. I mean, he was over, over the edge. His, his wife had died of cancer, too, so this was a really big deal. So we call up, Susan and Paula and I, and we wanted to go see Shraddha, and Jake answers the phone. And I guess Paula was on the phone and said, you know, Jake, we want to come and see um, Mary, was her, what her father called her. She's too tired, you shouldn't come and visit. Paula said, well, you know, we really want to come. No, she shouldn't have any visitors. And he slammed the phone down. And so the three of us converse. I actually stayed out of it. I just let them talk, Susan and Bhakti. And uh, Paula, hmm, they said, you know, when she had enough strength, she really didn't like Jake to run her life. Hmm, I kind of bet she wouldn't want Jake to be running her life now. So we went over to the house, and we knocked on the door. Jake opens the door. I mean, Jake, like, he really needed to fight with somebody. He was so, you know, just overwrought. He wanted the whole world to just explode. I mean, he wanted to obliterate everything because his daughter was dying. So he just opens the door and sees us there. And he says, you know, what are you doing here? I told you not to come. Me, I would have said, well, we're here anyway. But I was smart enough to stand back. Paula just looked right at him. She knew exactly where he was coming from. She said, just like this, Jake, we had to come. And then Jake just did it a second time. Paula just totally just looked again. Jake, we had to come. They did it three times. And finally Jake said, well, don't stay very long. (laughs) But, you know, she just knew. It was, and it really was, uninterrupted conscious discrimination. She just looked at the situation and knew just where to to be in it, exactly where to be. She could tell the difference between everything and just pick the threat, picked it up right from the right place and just went in like that. It was the truth. We had to come, but she didn't. You know, she didn't deal with anything with him. She just held on to that one little bit of the piece that was the right piece. And he felt it too. You know, he, he, he finally accepted. Yeah, we had to come. And I mean, I think he was also, he also received. You know, and on, on some level she was loving him really deeply, which is what also made it work. He really felt that, you know, she loved him and she loved his daughter and we had to come. That was just the, the, end, the beginning, middle, and end of the story. So that's, you know, just knowing what is being asked of me in this moment is what we're, we're trying to do. Because every single moment, this is so, it's so powerful. Every moment is exactly the same. I mean, when you really contemplate that, it's never any different. There's not big tests and little tests and important moments and unimportant moments and spiritual moments and non-spiritual moments. Every moment is exactly the same. We are either standing in 
that power or we're not. And I come back to the eight manifestations of God because that's how it works best for me. Because the moments vary in terms of what is the right way to respond. Sometimes you just put out energy. Sometimes you're fierce. You have something to be very powerful. Sometimes love is the answer. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you just have to do things that comes up later in here. Swami talks about ahimsa. You know, sometimes you still have to, even though you have ahimsa and you, you don't wish anybody any harm, that is not the same as being a pushover or a coward. You know, sometimes you, power is what's required. It's not peace. But every moment you have to be a channel for the divine. And you have to have the uninterrupted conscious discrimination to understand what God is asking of you in that moment. And, you know, that's fun. Uh, And, you know, you get to fail a lot. (laughs) And so it makes you humble, which is also good. And you get to succeed a lot because victory becomes a very different story. Any questions before we take a break? Yes. Who's got the microphone? We seem to have a particularly airhead relationship to the microphone tonight, but let's just keep at it. Uh Well, these are wonderful things that you're saying, but um, it sounds so challenging for me because I have a tendency to get angry very easily. Like, wow. Uh So do you have any... Oh, how Wonderful about, suggestions. You know, <laughs> um, I wrote a letter once. Somebody wrote me a question about how to overcome fear. Yeah. And I wrote this long, which, and when I read it later, I thought it was a really good letter, but when I was writing for the book and I read it again, I didn't like it much. But somebody else liked it, and I, I, mean, I don't know for certain that it was my letter, but I think it was. That he gave it to Swami thinking it was a really nice piece, and later Swami, without speaking to me, said, you know, somebody wrote this long thing about over, how to overcome fear, just all this long, complicated thing about overcome fear. He said, you just face it and get over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. So I sort of feel like there's no answer. You just have to just fail and get up again and fail and get up That's again fine. and fail and get up again. Okay. And as long as you know in your heart that this is a fault, not a virtue... Oh, it is. Yeah, see, that's, that's the beginning of it. That's what I was saying here. You have to just mentally resist. Okay. Just a, a piece of you doesn't, never goes into the fact that this time I was really right. Mm. This time I might have had a better case than I did the other times, but that doesn't really make you right. That's what I said, why it's so delicious when the test is when every fact is on your side and everybody's behaved badly, but it's still your responsibility. It just is. Do the best you can. And, yeah, and, you know, you're, you're gutsy. Just hang in there, that's all. Uh, that's right. Yeah. I'm very persistent. Yeah, you're per- persistent. That's all that's required. Back on the other side here. I'll move it across. Well, I, I started having an angry conversation in my head today with somebody. And I started having an angry conversation in my head with somebody today. And... And I kind of played it out, and, and, you know, I was ready to quit. And then I thought, and then I'll lose everything. And, Good point. And I, and I thought, um, I just thought, you know, 
see, I'm, I'm losing what I thought, but it was, it's kind of like, I, I just didn't want to, to do that play. Yeah. It, it, all the agony in, involved in it just wasn't worth it. Right. And so I just stopped feeling so angry. You know, I have, I've counseled people. I've, I've counseled couples. And I've counseled them with something that I found very useful too. You know, you can make a big list of what your partner's not doing. And a lot of that list is accurate and they're really not going to do it and they're never going to do it. It's just the way it is, you know. That's, it's what I call... That's, it, I, it's seven years actually. At seven years, you actually realize that this is what you've got. <laughs> this is my belief on the quote seven-year itch. And I call it the thunk point, you know, just enough daily life is coming, you, and you're just sitting there and you realize, this is really it. It's not really going to be different than this. And even if you're, you know, you have a, made a great choice and you have a great partner, they just have this annoying habit of not being you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they aren't. And, and so... You have to apply the criteria. My criteria is, is this a marriage buster? I mean, meaning, is this, is this bad enough that I have to bust up the marriage because of this? You know, and then I, I suggest to people, imagine the rest of your life with whatever quality this is and ask yourself if it's still worth living with them. And if it is, forget it. Just forget it. Now, what you were talking about was you start thinking we get wild up on this one little point and then we're going to lose everything. People do it all the time. They get, I mean, people come into Ananda, then they have a bad experience with somebody. Because, wow, we all incarnated because we have karma to work out. Or you meet some old karmic enemy, or you meet somebody who has just exactly the right fault that just goes right into the cave of your vulnerability. And you battle it with somebody, and then you become terribly disillusioned, and we never see you again. Gee, what did you think was going to happen? But it just breaks my heart. People throw the whole thing away over one bad interaction. And yeah, so-and-so, yeah, they really can be an old curmudgeon and they are kind of a pill. Wow, look at that. And they managed to find you, just like a, you know, like a sniffing dog. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can depend on it. Is it worth losing the whole thing? And I've seen people, they'll lose the, they lose the whole thing because they were really treated rotten. And sometimes they really were treated rotten. They were. But is it worth losing the whole thing? Uninterrupted, constant discrimination. Why did I come here? What is it for? And yes, I'm just as annoyed as can be and I may have to work this thing out, but I'm not going to lose the whole thing. It's just not worth it to me. And I see people who just, they're going to lose the whole thing. Please don't do that, I think. Please, please don't do that. People throw away their marriages, too, because they get fixated on. So you really have to ask, is this really worth busting the whole thing up? When I actually came to that, you know, in my own life, my 30-something years with David, it just life got so much easier. He's never really going to change because, you know, it's just who he is. Unfortunately, he's a fabulous fellow, but he's not exactly like me. He just, and he can't see that my ways are superior. <laughs> you understand? Yeah, every woman in the room especially understands, right? And, but is it worth it? it am I, is it giving me more than it's taking away? 
I mean, there's a thousand other ways to answer it, but you have to ask that question. And sometimes the answer is, you know, it's taking away more than it's giving me. I really can't do this. Yeah. yeah so even, even going beyond the, the quitting, um, you can just decide that you're not going to be mad about it. You, you... Well, this is the interesting thing that I was noticing in myself today, that the Vrittis have an extremely annoying way of persevering, even when you're persevering too. So you can definitely decide, this is, this is my own Asha's little mantra. There are those actions that I commit and those actions that I am committed to. Meaning, I'm still angry, I have to admit that I'm angry, I'm just too petty and I want somebody to, to apologize to me. I'm committing that thought, but I'm not committed to it. I'm, I'm, I'm still doing it, but I know that I... I'm not, I'm not committed to doing this. I'm committed to overcoming it, even though I'm still committing it. So, so you would go ahead and play it out? Uh, I try to minimize the damage to me in the world. Yeah. You know, when people call me and ask me for all kinds of things, and they say, oh, I don't want to impose on you, I said, believe me, don't worry. I, I have no problem saying no. And when I say no, it's because you really don't want to talk to me today. Believe me. <laughs> Whatever good I might be able to do for you is not going to be today because I'm just a menace. And if I know I'm going to be a menace, I just take myself out of harm's way. And I've, you know, I've walked out of rooms. I, in, my, in the very early years of Ananda, I just, you know, I, I just was so impatient because my mind was so fast and I, just, I had such a hard time letting other people figure things out when I had already jumped to the end. And I was off, also often wrong. But sometimes I wasn't, and I would just have to wait. So I did needlepoint. I took needlepoint to every meeting I had to go to. Because I was, about, I was just about to die, so I just would needlepoint cushions. <laughs> and that was how I kept myself sane. And it was like, when people would, anybody would look cross-eyed at me, I just, I didn't even explain. It was like, believe me, you want me to be doing this cushion, you know? And i just do the cushion until I could... So, I mean, it just... You have to just think, this is my reality. I can't, I can't just sit here, because if I just sit here, I will say something I will deeply regret, so I will needlepoint. I didn't have to do a lot of cushions. <laughs> okay, let's take a short break. Pardon me? You know, there was somewhere in, uh, I think it's in the path, where, um, is it Jerry Torgerson, the... Uh, the disciple who had such a temper and, and, and he was stomping away and Swamiji or someone said to him, um, don't go away mad. And Jerry said back, would you want me to come back and go away madder? <laughs> I was on, I was on, the, you were talking about talking on the phone. I was talking to someone once and I don't know, something, I don't know what it was, but it was very upsetting to me. And I'm just sitting there. It wasn't like we were arguing, but it was very upsetting. And I just looked at, I, I just looked at the phone and I just went, <laughs> you know, just like cut it off. <laughs> and then I just put the phone down. And I mean, sometime later, maybe they called back. I think they tried to call and I didn't answer then. And then, because I knew they were just calling back. And later it was, I don't know. I, know. I didn't say I didn't know. I said, well, we just got cut off, didn't we? <laughs> Which is, that was better than my continuing. You know, because it's just like, this was not going to take us anywhere, so let's just stop. Yeah, at that moment. Well, 
well, this was beyond. This wasn't like that. It was more just, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but I do remember that wonderful magical moment when I realized I can just stop the call. <laughs> it was just such a fabulous realization. I don't have to finish this because this is not going to end well. So let me end it now because it's going to end much worse if we stay with it. And then I just didn't answer the phone. And it's just like you have to just decide what this can do. I wanted to comment something about you were saying about the argument started running in your mind. This is not exactly what you were saying, but this is a fact about meditation and other parts of this. I, I used to, f- this used to happen more, and it, it still happens, but it used to happen when I was, I was less well acquainted with myself. That what would distract me in meditation, it was often very important for me to notice. Because oftentimes when, you, when I tried to concentrate and tried to make my mind quiet, what would bubble up would be as important as making my mind quiet because I would suddenly realize that I was upset about something I didn't know I was upset about. I was reaching out for something I didn't know I was reaching for. I was anxious about something that I didn't really know I was anxious about. So I often said to people, pay attention to what distracts you in meditation. I don't mean, you know, search for it, but it'll sometimes tell you more than you realize what you're really feeling about things. Because we're we're not always so in touch with all the levels. We have practiced pushing things aside rather than actually overcoming or transcending them. And one of the things that happens in meditation is that our awareness expands. Or I find if you suddenly are walking down the street and you realize you're having an argument with someone in your mind, oh my goodness, look at this, where is this coming from? And then you have to just stop and figure it out. But it's not always just, oh, I'm such a terrible person or I'm so wrong or they're wrong. Some of it is also very informative. And, And we have to know what we're dealing with. Oh, look, I'm really quite capable of becoming very upset about this. There's certain things that I just won't deal with. They just are too upsetting to me. I'll just say, David, you just have to handle that. I just don't, I don't have the patience or I don't have the attunement with it or whatever it is or not today, whatever it might be. Just be very honest about yourself. As Swami put it, this was in a bigger context, but when he had a group of colony leaders together, he said to us, you must take yourself and your own spiritual well-being into account. He said it would be presumptuous of you not to also think about your own reality in this. You you know, none of us are self-realized. He didn't say that, but that was implied. And we also have to, to consider whether this is going to be spiritual help, helpful to us. As an example, he said, maybe a very stern decision has to be made, but it's not good for you to make stern decisions. He said, so just don't make it. Make a charitable one. And it'll all work out better in the end if you do that, because if that's what, if that's what you have to do is to not step into that reality. I mean, there's certain things over the 30 years that we've been here, you know, customs or attitudes of, that, or the policy or something like that. And mm, somebody will come from another colony and say, why are you letting that happen? Mm, just because I'm going to let it happen, that's all. Because I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to try to enforce that policy or persuade that person to do this. It's, I'm just not going to go there. Because it's not good for me. I'm not going to win. It's, I, can't make, I don't have the magnetism to make it happen. So I'm just not going to go there. You just let a lot of things roil around. In the end, it all sort of works itself out. Ananda's, Ananda's like, 
you know, it's like one big, utterly, internally chaotic thing that just kind of chugs along like this. (laughs) And it moves very steadily and successfully, even though it's a swirling mass of confusion on the inside. It's slightly less so than it used to be, but not really. It's just never tidy. It never just organizes itself just really neatly. It runs better than it used to on an external objective standard, but it never does really because none of us are. You know, we're just we're all just a roiling mass of so and so and we're all just kind of scooting forward like that. <laughs> My images are not really very <laughs> Yes. So what you said about um you know, not taking such and such an action if it would be bad for you personally to do right. that. I guess sort of presupposes that you actually know what would be better or worse for you personally <laughs> to do it. And so is that just a do your best no, kind that's of situation? Just, yeah, you just do your best. Sometimes you find out by making terrible mistakes. Because sometimes I also feel conflicted. Like I've, I've, it's hard to tell, like, would that actually be a bad thing or for me to do or do I just not want to or yes. kind of both? Well, that's where the difference between analyzing in a circle and actually have an intuition. And I, the only way I know to learn is to have the courage to just go out there and fling yourself into the melee and see what happens. And sometimes really not so good things happen and then you remember. <laughs> you realize, you know, you step... I mean, all of us have. You just step in so cheerfully and confidently and then suddenly you are just in a nightmare. And the next time you think a little more carefully before you do it. Yes, uh, it's right next to you. I was actually thinking of the same thing. Uh, recently I had an experience where somehow this, this exact thing came to my mind and uh, I'm generally not used to being a pushover. I, I always have a loud voice. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I, I noticed that I was being compelled to always speak up. Uh-huh. And uh, I knew that in this situation, if I did not speak up, I would end up being a pushover. But then I thought, maybe let me see how it feels to be a pushover. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's so... I, it, from the objective view of the situation, it didn't feel like I should not speak. But just personally, I just felt like maybe I should just try it out and see how it goes. Uh-huh. I mean, there's not much to lose anyways. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, that's a very good point. This is... Uh, Jill was mentioning this in the break. The purpose of this... The point of the spiritual path is freedom. You know, we talk about your possessions have power over you. The point is freedom. It's not to be nice or to be gentle or to be make a million dollars or to always be in charge or always be right. It's to be free, to respond to what God wants you to do and not be compelled by our own vrittis, our own misunderstandings, our own selfish needs to behave in, in, in a way that we don't have choice. And so to practice just having choice... Sometimes we don't do this very much here, but when the early years of Ananda Village, people would go into silence sometimes. And so you'd be in silence even though you were still working, just not in seclusion. And it it was, especially for a person who has a notable voice, such as moi, it was very interesting to be in silence for a couple of days and realize, my, 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 they figure it out even if I'm not there, (laughs) you know. And you're watching it and you realize, wow, a lot of what I say is not needed. I'm not there and they're all getting... I'm not speaking and they're all just doing just fine. And so you, you get a perspective. I think that's actually a very good thing to do. Then, then you become more free 
uh, to be able to do what's necessary, not merely what you're habituated to doing. So it's, it's very good practice to be someone other than you usually are, um, just so that you can choose like that. Okay? That's why I was so impressed today by this, this uh, compelling uh, desire to argue. It was just a very interesting, just sort of, wow. I mean, I, I tend to be slightly, somewhat, majorly insistent on my point of view anyway. <laughs> but uh, this was particular feeling. Just, it was just like, it was so internal. It was so unrelated to anybody else's reality. That's what struck me. This is a vritti that I just carry around and I, I want to, and what was so impressive to me was I did not want to get rid of it. What I wanted to do was I wanted to run another cycle of it. You know, just, I just really wanted, I just wanted to. And I thought, wow, that is so wild. It gives you just so much respect for ignorance. And see, what happens then, at least for me, is I suddenly become much more understanding of everyone else. Because it's just so easy to, everybody else such a big target, you know. He shouldn't have behaved like that. She shouldn't have behaved like that. How dare they do that? Wow, I know how they do that. It's because one of these vrittis just grabbed them by the neck and they didn't have a choice. And when you sort of see yourself how easily we would just swirl out of center, you, may, you feel very compassionate toward people rather than angry with them. See, that's how Swami was able to do it. He'd been there, he'd done it. He'd, everyone he looked at, he, he just saw what was really happening with us. And he also saw that we were also going to get free of it. We were not going to stay there. And so he would, he would see our freedom. He would really see our freedom, and then he just wouldn't mind the, what we were doing. This is what I've emphasized so many times recently, because it's just impressed me so deeply, that every single delusion that we are living through, Master has actually lived through. The, the, the sum total of ignorance and enlightenment that is contained within in this immortal Atman right now, this exact formula, Master has stood in this exact formula. So when he looks at it and me, he says, well, there you are. I, I remember that one, you know, it's rather nostalgically. Oh, yeah, I remember that. The 79% ignorance, the... You know, the 13% goodness, the so-so not decided part. And, you know, and this is how it works itself out. Makes me feel very much more relaxed about the whole story. Yeah? You know that song in the Festival of Light, Long We Fear to Face His Love? Oh, yeah, isn't that something? Uh I think that's, well, speaking for myself... I think it's just behind, you know, all this whole conversation we've been having tonight and for weeks and yeah. weeks. We, we, start, we don't know how the spiritual path works. So really? now we're learning how the spiritual path works. Right. We have all kinds of Kali Yuga versions of how to relate to God, right. which are yeah. goofy. And so I think for a long, long time, we're afraid to just try it to to do it to be it to to love God to allow ourselves out, and I think it's just a, it's a lot of that Kali Yuga influence. Well, that and just sheer delusion. You know, uh, I don't know which disciple was it. Was it Dr. Lewis or was it Roy Davis who kept asking Master to give them samadhi? 
Dr. Lewis, you want Master to give him the state of samadhi? And finally, Master said to him directly, do you really think you could take it? Only he said it more powerfully than that. Couldn't you take it? And, and, and all of a sudden, you see, Dr. Lewis is facing the dissolution of everything he calls himself. He's just going to lose everything he thinks himself, and it becomes very frightening. No, no, sir, I don't think I could take it. Swamiji tells the story of some SRF uh, center leader somewhere in Europe, and back at the SRF, when he was in SRF in the, in the whatever, the 50s and the 60s, 50s, um, and he just, this rumor kept coming to him of this terrible experience that this SRF leader had had. And finally, when Swami got to, I think it was Paris, and he finally got to talk to the man, the man said, well, I was meditating, and this great white light appeared in front of me, and there was a blue field into it, and I felt myself just draw, being drawn away into the star, and I felt myself losing myself and dissolving in that. And he said, it was terrible. Terrifying, terrible. Swami just said, oh. But it is. I mean, really, you're wife gets upset with you, you notice that you're not as handsome as you used to be and you can't op- I can't open the jars anymore and the car gets smashed and I might not have the money. What if the whole thing was obliterated? It's very scary. And let's see, now where, where were we on that? What, what, what was exactly that you said? Why, why did I answer that? Uh-huh. Oh yes, long we feared to face thy love, lest our emptiness it prove. Here we are just clinging to all these, these things and if we actually compared them to divine bliss, we would realize how sad we are. No, it comes step by step because you... Well, this is, this is that letter that I wrote after I went to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. This was the letter I wrote last year from, I mean, in the winter from India. And it was such a powerful thing for me because Ramana Maharshi at the age of 16 had a death experience. And he was a, just an average, I mean, he appeared to be just an ordinary person, but he thought he was going to die for some reason. And at that point, he realized that everything was going to go away. What was he doing just being a student and doing this? So he walked out of his house. And he went and he sat in a temple for a while and then he went into a hole under the temple and it just and he just meditated and bugs were crawling all over him and it being India, people sensed that this was a great soul and they began to care for him in some way. And then he walked from there and went up to this cave on the mountain there and then walked went to another cave. And he never thought about anything because his state of understanding made that an appropriate thing for him to do. And this is what I wrote, and I'll, I'm repeating it here. I'm sitting in Bangalore in the living room of this very comfortable flat, and we were having a very informal conversation. And I said something about dropping out of Stanford and then just seeing Swami, and just as soon as I met him, and I just gave up everything, and I went. And she said to me, Weren't you afraid? You know, didn't that make you nervous? Oh, just leaving your education, leaving everything behind? I looked at her and I, I, I had to answer honestly. It never crossed my mind. And it has, has never crossed my mind. Now, I looked at Ramana Maharshi and thought, whoa, way beyond me. But this woman looked at me and thought, wow, you know. And to me it was 
it was just the size dress that I needed to wear. If I'd put on another one, it was just too tight for me. And if I'd put on Ramana Maharshi's, I would just be swimming in it and be lost forever. So we, don't, we can't really conceptualize it because it's not a concept. It's I move with who I am. And again, Swami's genius was always to be able to tell you know, where you needed to move. He could always give you something that you could say yes to. Did you, did you want to speak? And when the one time he gave me something that I couldn't do, well, not one time, I failed him a lot of times. Come on, let's get real. But one time when we discussed it, he had given me something to do I couldn't do, and I said, sir, I need to be sincere with you. I was trying to be more sincere with him at that time. That was part of the reason why I said it. Before that, I would just let things slide. He would ask me to do something, I wouldn't do it, and I would just let it slide. And I really didn't want to do that. So I mean, I'm not doing what you asked me to do. Well, so much for theory. He said, let's work with reality. I mean, not a extra breath. It's all right. That was a good idea, but it didn't work, did it? Okay, well, it'll work. Yeah, both Swami and Yogananda say at night before you go to bed, just dissolve yourself into the the universe and do it as a regular practice just to feel it. Just to feel it. It's fun sometimes to imagine. It is a process Yeah. and you can do it. And so... What if? What if I just dissolved right now? What if everything I'm attached to disappeared? What if I woke up and couldn't, didn't know my name? What if I woke up into the infinite light? Just play with it. Meditate on it. Have meditations like that. They're great fun. Yeah. The ego's gone. What if? What if there's nobody home? Yeah, Yeah. I remember the first time I started toward the light and uh, my ego just said, No, stop! Yeah. I remember I had some tiny experience and I said to Swami, you know, well, then this happened and that happened. And he said to me, don't be afraid. I said, I'm not afraid. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, maybe I am. He did, then he said, just so sweetly, don't be afraid. You'll get used to it. Like that. It was almost nothing, really. but so, yeah. Okay, great souls. We've uh, used up our time. And so we went through number 26. So just for the sake of the record, we went from 221 through 226, which